0: Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Connor Chato.
1: And I'm Nicole Poznov.
0: And we are here with Borna Mahmudian. Uh, Borna, I'm not going to try and introduce your research since we have you right here. Um, so what is it you do here at Western?
2: So um, I'm currently in the neuroscience program and um, my research concerns with how does the brain represent what, where others are looking? So for in my research, we look at how the brain represents eye and head orientation. And by representing, I mean that your brain is made up of individual cells. and everything that you can imagine that you experience, I, I, whether it's sensory or whether it's, for example, maybe a memory or anything that you ever experience is represented by the cells, individual cells in your brain. And so what we want to know is how is eye and head orientation of other individuals, how is that represented in the brain? Because that will allow us to know how we understand where other people are looking. And that's very important for social communication in primates.
1: And so you're saying how other people's gaze means to you, what that means to you, right? So like whether your eyes or your head turns, could you elaborate on that a little bit or...?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's, like, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, well, I'm speaking uh, strictly about other people's gaze. Mm-hmm. So for example, whether your head is directed at me or directed 45 degrees away from me, or your eyes are looking at me, or your eyes are looking 45 degrees away from me. So yeah, we're looking at um, neural correlates of eye and head orientation in primates.
0: Cool, and this is a pretty social based thing, I imagine. I imagine that less social animals maybe don't have this as much.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, part of it has to do with what sensory domain uh, that animal, that species, uses to explore the environment. For us primates, it's mostly the visual system, right. and that's how we gather information about the environment. And so, therefore, the social communications uh, communication between individuals uh, is also done through that domain. And because uh, primates have a lot of their... Uh, the anatomy of the face of, of primates is quite intricate. So it allows them for many different facial expressions to communicate different uh, intentions and emotions, right? So as you can imagine, um, this leads to... Um, for example, the use of um, uh, eye contact, for example, to initiate um, a interaction, or looking away, for example, to breaking that interaction. So yes, that definitely depends on the sociality of the species, but also what um, modality of sensory system they use to explore the environment. Yeah, and you know, um, speaking about why it's important. For example, there are um, there are experiments. This is actually very cool. Experiments done in the um, in the '70s by, oh, damn it, I forgot who the guy's name is, but he did the um, he did the prison experiments. Um,
0: Stanford prison experiments? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah,
2: same guy, right? He did these experiments. So uh, he his experiments were based looking at conformity, right? He did also experiments looking at how people. Um, looking at conformity through like social signals for example he had people standing in the middle of the street right looking up at a building looking at pretty much nothing right and then he waited and he uh, saw how many people would gather and do the same right how many past perhaps buyers and as he increased the number of people doing that act as it increased, for example, one person looking up at the sky to ten people looking up at the sky, more people actually stopped by and followed the gaze. Right? Mm. Now, those were like experiments showing how uh, the number of people increases the you know the, the confidence if you have in. Um, w- where people are looking the, the conformity if you will right mm. increases conformity because you want to you know if, if it's one person you probably think that guy's crazy yeah. if it's 10 people because we're a social species we think okay you know I'm going to conform to the norm and I'm going to actually see what's what's out there right and we follow the gaze of other individuals all the time right it's one of the one of the aspects of development it's crucial for social development That's for learning so cool. language and everything yeah yeah I, I,
1: Oh, sorry. I was going to say, well, so what part of the yeah. brain is that used, and how, how would you study that, like, exact, like, how do you reach those certain parts of the brain and those individual cells?
2: Yeah. So um, in order to really get into the nitty-gritty of how the brain represents that information, you would have to have access to individual cells to see how they are encoding or representing that information. But to uh, put it in more broad, general terms there are areas within the temporal lobe of the human brain um, that basically does object recognition and those areas some of those areas share um, uh, neural correlates for face recognition so both recognition and encoding or representing uh, face orientation, like head orientation, or eye orientation. What actually happens is that when you go from the back of, the, of that hemisphere, of that lobe, if you will, um, and this is represented in both hemispheres, but of that lobe, of the temporal lobe, when you go from the back to the front, which is the way that the information, if you will, travels, right? There's obviously backwards connections as well, but Um, just in general terms, you have um, gradual encoding of first face parts. So there are cells that are responding to ear, there's cells that are responding to eyes, there are cells that are responding to mouth. And as you go further along, there are cells now responding to complete faces and there are cells that then go on responding to an identity. So it's like a population of cells each encoding um, for different parts of the face feed into one cell and that becomes that person's identity. Because each one of us have facial features that are very specific, right? For example, I don't know, I might have like a flatter nose or like wider ears. And so you can imagine that uh, these cells that are uh, encoding or representing the different um, aspects of the face when they feed into one cell, they would be able to represent an identity, or a facial identity, if you will. And that's how the brain represents faces. How it represents gaze is a little bit less unknown, but within the similar regions, um, um, the brain represents eye and head orientation. But how it uses that information to be able to follow gaze is not very well known. And one of the reasons is because it's very difficult to study that form of um, that aspect in humans because you don't really get a chance to go in that level of detail to look at the cellular level. And in non-human primates because it's just difficult to be able to, like, for example, put two, I don't know, monkeys together in front of each other and record their brain activity at that fine level while they're performing a social task.
0: Yeah that's it's 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 so interesting that it's all of that just dedicated to faces specifically it's not it's not as general a thing as body language or sound or voice there's probably whole separate regions of the brain dedicated to those things Um, I I imagine, I guess I don't know, but. (laughs) No,
2: absolutely. So these areas uh, that I just spoke about are not necessarily the primary sensory areas, so places where they get information directly from the sensory organs. A little bit further down, but you're absolutely right. It definitely works like that. And these areas during development actually start responding to faces. There are um, experiments. And don't quote me in this. I could be a little wrong about this. But there are experiments where they um, basically, the point that they're trying to make is that because faces are very salient to primates, that during development, because they see them a lot, those regions become specialized Mm. for it. And so they have basically, they deprive monkeys of seeing faces right so in these experiments they have like a baby monkey that was just born and people who take care of it basically have their face covered right mm-hmm. and so they interact more for example with a hand of the individual right and what they see is that those areas of the brain start representing or more specialized for example for hand rather than like for faces so this they're the, during development that actually the, the interaction level that um what you're exposed to really uh, determines the development of the, those areas, yeah.
0: So it's like our brain itself is learning that faces are important and kind of developing absolutely. a region to accommodate
2: that. Yeah, absolutely. And does it yeah.
1: matter if it's a human looking at where a monkey is looking or if a monkey is looking where a human is looking? Does that make a difference? Mm-hmm. Like if you're looking at different, cre- like something not your species face?
2: Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good question. So monkeys tend to uh, follow uh, head orientation more than eye orientation. The reason for that is if you, if you look at a human's eyes, they have white sclera, right? That white around your eyes. That allows a level of contrast so that when you're orienting your eyes in different places, I'm able to really tell where you're looking. It's very easy for me to determine where you're gazing uh, even if you don't move your head because of that we can communicate through eye orientation alone but for monkeys uh, that sclera is actually dark so there is no contrast for you to be able to easily determine the eye orientation of the other individual so uh, therefore they typically follow the head orientation uh, of the other individual um, and yeah it definitely depends actually uh, for following gaze it depends whether The other species is a conspecific, meaning like a monkey and a monkey, or a monkey and a human. They tend to follow the uh, gaze of their conspecifics more readily and faster. And then, for example, in experiments that they show two pictures, one monkey, one human to a monkey, they tend to look at the monkey more and at the first time. So, if you give them the option, they'll first look at the monkey and then the human. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. And that's different cells depending if you're looking at head moving or your eyes moving too is that different signals that you would be seeing as your results for that
2: yeah um yeah in and f- for example the place i was talking about the infratemporal cortex um where the faces are represented yeah exactly you have eye uh, orientation selective cells as well as head orientation selective cells yeah
0: so you are working in the lab with uh monkeys directly as part of your,
2: yes as part yeah of your work? yeah macaque mulata yeah rhesus macaques so yeah. Cool. these are the <laughs> these are the same monkeys that you've seen for example uh, uh Thailand for if you see pe- okay. people's pictures from the vacations and stuff yeah
1: how yeah. big did these monkeys get
2: oh um Oh, a meter tall, a meter and a half? That looks like about, that looks <laughs> yeah. like about a meter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're like it, it really depends. It varies um, what, from female and male, but I would say they go about um, six, seven kilos to about 15 kilos, oh, wow! 18. But they're yeah. not little. No, some of the big guys are massive, yeah, <laughs> are quite massive.
0: Yeah. Cool. And so your lab work then, so your day-to-day actually in lab getting this data involves kind of interacting and, and what are the what are the monkeys actually doing in, mm-hmm. in your lab to you know, yeah. show data. So
2: we basically train for my experiment we train the monkeys on a task in which they have to follow the gaze, head or eye orientation of an avatar monkey, like of a three D model monkey. This is presented on the screen. And they have to follow the gaze of this avatar monkey to one of the four objects that we show on the screen. Um, and basically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to have a social cue that the monkey has to utilize in order to get a reward. And then we're contrasting this with a non-social cue, for example, an arrow, which the monkey you know doesn't know what an arrow is, right? It doesn't really mean anything to it. But over a course of time, it gets conditioned to know that if it's moving this way, If it's pointing this way, that means I have to uh, look at that object. If it's pointing the other way, I have to look at, for example, on the right. And
1: and what kind of reward would you give them when you're training them?
2: (laughs) We try to keep the reward always, in terms of the type of reward, always the same because change is, they don't like change. You know, if they like something, we will stick into it, yeah. Um, We typically give grape and apple juice, yeah, or just grape juice, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Wish uh, we got that qu- kind yeah. of. <laughs> they're quite quite a fan, yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah.
0: So you're essentially watching TV with these monkeys, and you say your your control yeah. is an arrow. Is that is that what you're saying? So Correct. It's, yeah. It's a non-monkey. Yeah.
2: It's a non-social cue, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. A That's right. part of the yeah. That's part of the uh, control, and then we also because one of the difficulties that so in social neurophysiology is that you want to recording from a monkey um, or uh, um, the animal while they're performing a social task but it's very difficult to have for example a setup in which you have two animals interacting both of them being stationary for you to be able to uh, get data and Mm -hmm. record brain activity while they perform a task Um, and to sort of uh, overcome this if you will what we try to doing was making these avatar model monkeys and presenting it to the monkey and one question is you know how do you know whether this monkey really sees the avatar as a real monkey or at least responds to the cues the same so we have like a variety of different uh control if you will trials where um we have the avatar monkey look randomly look at different areas of the screen or uh, random objects appear and he looks at one of the two Mm -hmm. uh, at untrained locations so the monkey has never seen the objects appear in those places and um, we have the avatar looking at those and to see whether the arm subject actually follows the gaze to those objects or not yeah
1: very cool and so so as what i understand is you're a western alumni times 2.5 almost you have your undergrad here your master's here doing your phd so what's your favorite part about being in london about western in general
2: What is my favorite part about being on cheap rent, for sure? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of the cheaper cheaper options. Yeah, exactly. Hard to believe, but. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, I I think Western has an excellent research program, excellent neuroscience research program. Uh, At least I can speak only for neuroscience. Um, And I find that everybody is very accommodating with, you know, lending their expertise with, you know, trying to help each other out, whether it's on a PI, uh, principal investigator to principal investigator level, or whether it's students helping out each other. Yeah, it's a great community, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. lucky to be here. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and and going through master's and undergrad also here at Western, did you find you swapped your field a whole lot? Were you neuroscience mm. the whole way through, or...? Were you interested in a couple different things and, and landed, landed on this?
2: Actually, for me, I started um, taking uh, – I, I, I was interested in psychology at first in high school. And when I came here, I took psychology. This was way long ago because I took <laughs> some time off school. I took psychology when it was used to be – funny that you asked. It used to be taught by Jody Collum, and she used to teach a bio-psych. It's, I don't think it's any longer actually offered. She used to teach a bio-psych. It was like one of the only courses where you could take psych with bio and no required science courses because I only took like physics and chemistry. I never even had a background in biology. Okay. And so after I came out of school, I was coming back. I took physiology as like literally as a mistake. I had no idea what the hell physiology was because I'd never taken biology. No clue. So I took it and I loved it. So then I sort of switched from no sciences from a B.A. to a B.Sc., and wow. so I just kept going in that route and you know sort of turned, you know, went through the whole circle. And in my fourth year, I started taking a lot of psych neuroscience-related courses. Um, so yeah, it definitely has been like a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say. Definitely, I, I feel like I, I sort of wish that I knew that I was going to come into neuroscience because <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> it would allow me <laughs> to, like, yeah, at least be able, to, since this is a very interdisciplinary field, it's it you require to know not only the biology and whatnot, but also, you know, like mathematics and statistics helps a lot. Computer science helps yeah. a lot and
0: whatnot. No. I think there's not a single grad student in the world who who sits down and said, "Yeah, I absolutely know everything I need to know already." Yeah, no, absolutely,
2: this. I, I think agree. That's yeah. A universal. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you do, that's boring, right? That's, I mean, yeah, it's that's, that's, yeah,
0: it's amazing, but also I don't believe you. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: no. no way you know what you want to do from high yeah. school. Yeah, and so that fourth true. year course, that's what hooked you onto neuroscience and working yeah. with monkeys and stuff. Or did you always like monkeys? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't say I particularly pr- had an effect for them Um, and I didn't really know actually that Western did any uh, primate research but yeah my fourth year course and it was cellular and molecular neurophysiology uh, we had uh, one of the um, uh, profs was my um, uh, my supervisor right now uh, Julia Martinez Trujillo and he was talking about um, the sort of tasks they do with primates uh, doing a- attention-related tasks when they have to, like, basically notice a change in a stimuli, I mean, like, for example, a color or orientation change in a stimuli. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it, k- it kind of blew my mind because um, because I just, A, didn't know that those sort of experiments were being done and, you know, you could work with uh, a species that has such a high cognitive functioning ability.
1: I definitely didn't know Western had monkeys. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so, what do you think it was, in particular that that really, got you hooked with that fourth year neurophysiology course? What what do you think you, if 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 you can kind of mm-hmm. articulate that
2: sometimes? Other than monkeys. Yeah. Oh. Other than monkeys. Yeah. I thought. Um, so what really got me hooked was. One of the students that came in that actually later, um, I, uh, he, he was in Julio's lab, um, mm-hmm. Rob Gooley, I, uh, he actually presented his work. And it was very fascinating. Basically, they have these primates. Um, be n- they're navigating in the virtual environment with a joystick. Hmm. And the idea is that they have to remember, it's an associative learning task in which they have to remember the hierarchy, for example, of two colors, like let's say blue and red, right? In one context blue is rewarded more, in the other context red is rewarded more. Right? And they basically have to learn this association. And there are areas in the, uh, there's an area in the brain called the hippocampus where in rodents it's been shown that it encodes for place of the animal in a field. So for Mm. example, if you're um, if you're in a uh, in a particular place in a maze, that those cells would fire, and he basically wanted to know how the associated learning task would basically affect the uh, firing of those place cells. So, it, because it, the task was very cool, um, but I think more than that, it was just the fact that he was he was given the ability to really think about what he w- wanted to uh, test, mm-hmm. and he was just a he was given opportunity to do it and then throughout the years as he told me you know he because he think he was starting kinesiology or something he you know he ended up learning all this stuff to actually be able to execute it right and it you know took him many years but it is sort of uh, sort of reminded me that of like the type of job that I want to have where I can dedicate my time and life to it mm-hmm. as an it's something that I would think about, you know, regardless whether it's work hours, if you will or not, right? Yeah, and I, and I really like that idea about the re- about research just in general, right? It's something that you love and you you know think about it all the time. And, Hopefully, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> what we hope for, yeah.
0: Yeah, no No one has ever said the brain isn't complicated enough. Yeah, right. There's, right. there's <laughs> That's always too, yeah. something yeah. to study, for sure.
2: Yeah, so I think that sort of hooked me up mm, uh, to neurophysiology, but also just because of, you know, mo- mo- but to be honest, most of the things that I'd seen were mostly with M weren't with behavior, right? I never really seen much studies being done in behavior in my undergrad, at least. So that was sort of eye-opening for me. For most of them were like you know, cellular molecular, you know, dish uh, experiments done in, like, cell culture and stuff. So I was pretty ignorant to that stuff, and that there is a whole different area that's just, you know, dedicated to behavior.
1: And speaking yeah. of behavior, how are these yeah. monkeys, how do they, are yeah. they friendly, or do you have to kind of keep your distance? Yeah,
2: I would say, that it, I think it all depends on the personalities. The different different guys are, like, have different personalities, Guys and girls, uh, I would say yeah, and majority of them are very friendly. Yeah, Uh, we do tend to try to keep our distance though, because you know it's you know they're not pets. You know they they do have um, their behavior can be volatile, right? And because you know I'm not a monkey, so sometimes Mm -hmm. I might not be able to interpret their signals, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just sort of keeping your respectful distance, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, they're they're sweethearts. Uh, yeah. Do you have
1: What's your who's your favorite monkey? What's his oh, name? Oh,
2: that's that's a tough one. Um, I think right now, um, I would say Buzz. I Buzz. I really like that guy. Yeah, he's he's a sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, he's a hard worker and he's very fluffy. Aww. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Aww. And do you, you you have uh, a kind of monkey expert on hand, or have you learned a lot about how to, how to be a bit of a monkey expert yourself? Yeah,
2: so th- those typically actually end up being, I mean, my, my uh, professor, of course, knows a whole lot about it. But uh, those typically, that expertise typically falls in the hand of like the senior uh, PhD students and postdocs because they've like worked with monkeys for many years, right? Yeah. And so that experience sort of gets handed down through training, right? Um. So that's sort of where I got my expertise and then obviously working with them and experience and trial and error. Yeah. Cool. Learning all kinds of stuff. Yeah.
0: Um, that's probably about as much time as we have. I wish I could talk more about your, your research. Oh, it's super cool you. stuff. Um, but thanks for coming on the show. If anyone wants to learn more about uh, you, YouBornout or get in contact with mm. you, what is the best way to do so?
2: So I, I do have a Twitter um, the handle is borna underscore underscore M. So it's two underscores. Well, we'll post <laughs> Don't it ask me notes. why I <laughs> chose that. Yeah. I rarely I actually post on there. I usually just look at, you know, I start following people to look for articles and stuff. I'm going to try to be more active. I really should be because it's kind of fun to get to know the community. But also um, my um, PI's website is martinez.robarts.ca. And he has information about what we do in the lab over there. Yeah, definitely go ahead and check it out.
0: Okay, awesome. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at GradCastRadio. If you would like to listen to us, we are on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Also, you can listen to all of our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Alternatively, select podcasts can be watched on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. This episode with our guest,
2: Borna uh, Mahmoudian,
0: was hosted by <coughs> Mikan Archeto and
1: Nicole Fosnov.
0: And produced by Ariel Frame. Thanks for listening and have a great night.
2: Sog strong. <laughs> Stick with Sogs. Stick with Sogs. Can, we, can we do it all three of us together? Yeah. One, two, three. Stick with Sogs.
0: The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.